Uh, as Joe said, my name is Tim Pollock. I'm the small group director at the Wildwood campus. Uh, happy to be here. Happy that you guys <clears throat> are hosting me, although you don't have much of a choice. Um, but this campus is really special uh, to my family and me. This is the campus where we joined. So my, my wife and I uh, met at Flagler College, got married here in St. Augustine, moved away for several years. And so when we came back in 2014, this is the campus uh, where we became members. And so uh, we attended here for several years. And then uh, God was just doing some really interesting things and opened up uh, the uh, small group director position at Wildwood and really made that path for us uh, a pretty seamless one. And so we've been at Wildwood since 2018. And so uh, I brought along a picture of my family <clears throat> that I think will be, there, there it is. You know how it is, just a family hanging out on the beach with pumpkins, totally casual, <laughs> not. <laughs> I actually brought along one that had us from six years ago, uh, but it, it did not um, show up on the PowerPoint. Technology fails us yet again. So just imagine everybody uh, smaller. I had a little bit more hair, maybe a, a few less pounds. Side-by-side um, -side pictures can uh, be devastating for mid-40s mid dads, right? I'm rambling. <laughs> hey, for those of you who make good news uh, your church home, uh, you know that we have been through uh, a good bit of Exodus this year, and then we recently finished all of 1 Peter. Last week, we started a new series on 2 Peter, and so that's where we'll be picking up today. If you are new or visiting, uh, you picked a really good week because today's text is a beautiful one, and it, it, it really captures what it means to pursue Christian character, right? So in other words, what does it practically mean to live as a follower of Jesus Christ. And so uh, last week we left off with an invitation to share in the divine nature, to receive God's promises and then serve other people in love. And so John Piper illustrates this uh, with the following image. We are the light bulbs of our neighborhoods. God is the distant generator of electricity and God's promises are the cables that carry the power, right? And so with that image fresh in our minds, I want to jump into today's text. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, our passage starts in verse 5, but I'm actually going to go back to verses uh, 3 and 4 because they do help provide a little bit of context. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, the words will be up on the screen. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, 
forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we know from this same letter, specifically chapter 1, verse 13, that Peter will soon be martyred. In fact, he will be killed in brutal fashion under the reign of Nero, who's known for being a self-indulgent and corrupt tyrant who tortured and executed Christians for sport. So Peter's not messing around when he's writing this letter. He's not writing because he's bored, and he's certainly not looking for a pen pal. No, Peter, the disciple who famously and infamously wore his heart on his sleeve, is stressing the importance of Scripture as it relates to guiding and preserving our faith. And as you read through this letter, you can feel the sense of urgency in his tone. So when we look at the beginning of verse 5, which says to make every effort, it's important to notice that this command is based on verses 3 and 4, which are a description of what God has done for us. So it reads, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. And then through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises. Why? So that through them, you may participate in the divine nature. So God's divine power has given each of us the tools that lead to godliness. So the equation appears simple. Since He has given us the tools to be godly. We therefore strive to be godly. Easier said than done though, right? And this is the very heart of the gospel. We labor for virtue because God has already labored for us. And it's tempting to reverse that order, but in doing so, we're believing another gospel, one that does not exist. So rather than saying, I will work out my salvation in order that God might work in me. We say with the Apostle Paul, who writes in his letter to the Philippians, that I work out my salvation for it is God who works in me and to do of his good pleasure. So Peter's point is this. God is for us and his divine power is at work within us. And isn't that good news? And then as we get to the rest of verse 5, we see this amazing list of Christian virtues, a list that begins with faith and ends with love. And this list agrees with the rest of the New Testament, and that is that as believers, our confidence in God's promises is the way we plug in to God's power. And that love, even for our enemies, or perhaps especially for our enemies, is the goal and sum of of our lives. It's the light of the world that shows others into the way of the kingdom. And so Dave did a great job last week of explaining that faith is received, not earned. And yet, as Peter writes, we are to add to our faith. So God, the gift giver, presents us the beautiful gift of faith. And what are we to do with it? We are to be compelled not coerced or guilt-tripped, but compelled to multiply it. 
So imagine if, uh, for those of you who are parents, you bought your children gifts this Christmas. I hope you buy them some gifts. And, and they opened them up all excited with bedhead sticking everywhere. And they, and they found one and they said, oh, this is the one. I love this more than any other. Thank you so much for this gift. And they took that gift and they shoved it in the back of the closet to never look at it again. It would probably ruin the spirit of gift giving for the parent. And so how about you? Do you have some God-given gifts that you need to take out of storage, so to speak? Now, I don't know how this list of virtues hits you. Depending on your personality, uh, you may feel overwhelmed by all these descriptors. Or for some of you, you may feel like you're absolutely crushing that list, right? Like check, check, knowledge, goodness. Yeah, if that's you, great. I'd love to meet you. Whatever the case, my encouragement is this. It seems as though by giving all diligence to these things, we are actually working in partnership with God rather than on our own. And that's a really important distinction to make, that rather than working for God, we are working with God. And what Peter is further suggesting in verses 5 through 7 is that for the Christian, there is no other option but to press on. So we move forward, we advance, we apply ourselves with diligence to increase in goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, and love. This does not contradict what we heard last week, but rather it builds upon it. William Barclay, a Scottish theologian, puts it like this. Faith does not exempt a man from works. The generosity of God does not absolve a man from effort. Life is at its noblest and its best when our effort cooperates with God's grace to produce the necessary loveliness. If you're following along in our study, uh, this week you read Hebrews 8 through 11. And uh, it really is a joy to read Scripture together, uh, the way life circumstances uh, combine with Scripture relating to other Scripture. It, it's really neat. I'm sure you've seen that happen in your own lives, in your small groups. And so uh, this week in Hebrews 10:22, I read, "Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings." Love that. So by drawing near to God, we are able to experience goodness. We are able to experience knowledge and self-control and the rest of that list, and especially love. For as one writer puts it, love is not just the most important virtue, but also the virtue which encompasses all the others. Love is the overriding ethical principle from which the other virtues gain their meaning and validity. And it's important for us to remember how we define love, because if we don't, our culture will gladly do it for us. And 1 John 4 gives us a great starting point. It reads, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So first, how good is that? And second, this is the type of love that should motivate us 
as believers. It's the kind of sacrificial lifestyle that should define our lives and bleed into every area of our lives. So Jonathan Edwards is a familiar name in both Christian circles and high school classrooms. Uh, he wrote and preached during the Great Awakening, which, is, which was a revival of American Christianity. Uh, you have likely read portions of his sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's that sermon that most people know him by. But Edwards was a prolific writer. And even now, nearly 300 years after his death, he is often cited. And in his essay called The Nature of True Virtue, he argues that human society is deeply fragmented when anything but God is our highest love. And so sometimes you hear people say with great intentions that, that family is first or it's all about family. But Edwards argues that if our highest goal in life is the good of our family, then clearly we will tend to care less for other families. And similarly, if our highest goal is the good of our nation or tribe or race, then we will lose sight of the global family of God. And perhaps most tempting for us is the call of personal happiness. The just do what you do or do what makes you happy no matter who gets hurt in the process. But if our ultimate goal in life is our own personal happiness, then obviously we are going to put our own economic and power interests above others. And so Edwards concludes that only if God is our life center will we then find our heart drawn out not only to other people and to other races and to other classes, but to the whole world in general. And that brings me to the, the crux of this message, which is rooted in verse 9. But whoever does not have them, meaning that list of virtues, is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. So today's point is that your identity is in Christ. And from my short time in ministry, it seems that most problems can be classified under what J.A. Metters calls the born-again identity dilemma. For those of you old enough uh, to watch action movies that were released in the early 2000s, you likely remember Jason Bourne. Anybody Jason Bourne fan? Okay. <laughs> As you probably remember, he is a ridiculously trained agent. He can win a fight with a, a rolled-up magazine, a ballpoint pen, a single chopstick. Uh, in the first Bourne film, he wakes up from a failed mission, not remembering who he is, right? And so, but he quickly realizes all that he is capable of doing. But he doesn't seem to revel in his skill set. At times, he seems amused with himself, but his primary focus is really on regaining his memory, so his biggest frustration throughout the film is that he cannot remember who he is. So just like the handsome Matt Damon, our sin problems are nearly always traceable to an uncertainty about our identity. We simply forget who we are in Christ. And when we forget our identity, we should be as relentless as Jason Bourne until we know it again. 
And so that's my hope for you today, that you leave here remembering who you are. So what does that look like to remember who you are in Christ? It's different for everybody in this room. Uh, For me, it means opening my journal every Friday morning at 8.35 a.m. Yes, it's on my calendar at that time. And I turn to my goals about my relationship with God, and I read the same one every every single week, which is to replace lies with truth. To reject lies and replace them with truth. It also might mean for me texting a trusted friend in small group and saying, having a rough day, do you have a word for me? It also means for me when I'm feeling moments of panic or when I feel anxiety coming up toward my neck that I read and reread Philippians 4. It means remembering to leave margin on my calendar Time specifically slotted for silence and prayer and reflection and for exercise. And it even means a date night, right? That was my wife who amen, by the way. Not somebody else. That would be weird. Hey, maybe two date nights in one week. All right, so I am a relationally wired, introverted, type A weirdo. Right? So I need people, specifically my wife and close friends, and I need journals and to-do lists, and I need space to think and to read and to write. And when I have those things, my identity in Christ is secure. All the type A weirdos said amen. I love it. But when I let the busyness of my heart get in the way, my head starts to get a little bit fuzzy. So I don't know what lies you are believing, but if we are serious about adding to our faith, as Peter suggests, we have to have a plan in place to combat the lies of our culture, our adversary, and sometimes our very own minds. So the next time you get Jason born again identity, when you start believing the lie that your past sins have not been cleansed, I'd encourage you to replace that lie with the truth of 1 Peter 2.9, which says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And the reason that I love that verse so much is not so much that it reminds me of my royal lineage and my inheritance in the kingdom of God, which is great and awesome, but it's directed toward a community of people, not an individual. So 1 Peter 2.9 is not a verse that says, you are awesome, so be you. No, God says, I have anointed a people and a nation, a community of believers. There's nothing singular about 1 Peter 2.9. And this is what we mean when we say that Christianity is not a solo sport. So this week I read a great joke on Twitter, and I'm going to share it with you now. It's that the biggest miracle of Jesus's life was not his healings or his feedings, but that he was an early 30s male with 12 friends. Right? And it's funny and we laugh. Why? Because it's true. Right? So we likely have a generation of people with very few or zero friends because being friends is hard. 
right? It's messy. It's inconvenient. It takes work. And because of the internet, particularly social media, we have allowed ourselves to remove uh, community and accountability from our calendars because it's easier. And so here's my encouragement. If you are currently not in community with other people, I would urge you to step into the full joy of Christian life. The mutual affection, or as another translation puts it, brotherly kindness, right? And surround yourself with other, believer, with other believers, and, and you can start with just one, right? And the good news, you can find several ways to connect to community, But I think probably the most life-giving one is going to be small group. And I know you're saying, well, you're the small group guy. I I get that, right? But it's sort of biblical, right? I mean, it's, it's in the Bible, right? And so 10 or so people pointing you to Christ through both victories and losses. That's where you are going to receive life. And so when I look at the list of Christian virtues in today's passage, we look at faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, and love, I think, yeah, there maybe are a few that you can live out in isolation. But how beautiful and enriching and fulfilling when they are lived out in community. And so one of the most basic elements of community uh, is the way friendships create accountability, right? So much of the Bible and so much of community is just reminders. When we come back uh, to Second Peter in a few weeks, verse 12 starts with Peter writing this. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them. The entire book of Hebrews, which we've been reading through together this month, The the whole thing points back to the promises of the Old Testament over and over and over again. Why? Because we are creatures prone to forgetfulness. So remember what you are and remember that what you know is true. You have been born into the descriptors found in verses 5 through 7. So don't let them just be Bible knowledge. Let them be your identity. You are hidden in Christ raised from the dead, and made into someone new. There are countless verses that speak to our identity in Christ, and this morning I want to look at just two of them. And the first is 2 Timothy 1.7. It reads, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. I think we forget the power of the gospel sometimes. So last week, Dave took us back to the Star Trek days, right? So he brought out uh, a Captain Kirk reference, uh, and Captain Kirk would often plead to Scotty for more power. Sorry that you've had to see Captain Kirk for two weeks in a row. But today, I'm going to see his Captain Kirk reference and raise him a He-Man meme. (laughs) I didn't get nearly enough laughter for that. Oh my gosh. So while there's certainly nothing biblical about He-Man, I do think there is something to say for unleashing the Bible the way He-Man is unleashing his power and his sword against his arch nemesis, Skeletor. Right? So that said, you don't need He-Man's six-pack to share the word. 
right? Charles Spurgeon once said that the Bible is a lion. You don't have to defend a lion, just let that lion loose. Love that quote. So if the Bible is truly our authority, we have to start relying on its power to change the lives of those around us. We've all got copies of this. Some of us have multiple copies. There is power in this word. Right? The power of the gospel captured the heart of a murderous villain named Saul and transformed him into the most famous church planter and best church planter that we will ever know. The power of the gospel can take an abusive husband and change him into a loving dad. The power of the gospel breaks us from chains to alcohol, to drugs, to pornography. And the power of the gospel is going to bring one of your unbelieving family members or friends to Christ. And yet, our weird American dream culture distorts our notion of power. The power of the gospel is found in sacrificial love, not in force. So look at what the very next verse in 2 Timothy 1 says. It says, So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but rather join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So Paul doesn't say, we've got this awesome power, let's use it to overthrow the government. No, he says, we have the power of Christ, and with that power, Join with me in suffering. So I want to go back to 1 John 4 again because we see this idea personified so well in verses 9 through 12. It says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And this is the new part that we haven't read today. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. All right? Are you kidding me? What a good passage. First John 4 takes the great commandment to love God and to love others and completely colors it in. And when I think about this very building that we're in, I can't think of how it reflects the great commandment. All right, so we have this awesome auditorium. You've got comfortable chairs. You've got these lights that can fit the mood of any service or any verse and can change at any moment. We've got this amazing stage We've got clean lines and open space, and there are zero distractions in here. What a great place to love God and to worship him. And then when we leave, we step out into that uh, open lobby with windows overlooking the water, which is just a beautiful view, right? And all this space to connect with people, and what a place to love others, Right? And I'll be honest in that the years that I attended here, I would often overlook that invitation that God was offering to me every single week to love God and to love others here. And I humbly offer that invitation to you. And so I said earlier that so much of the Christian life is by way of reminder. 
And that's where Peter goes as we get to the end of today's passage. Verse 10 reads, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Now, no matter what you know about this verse or whatever you've been taught on the doctrine of election, remember that Peter is nearing his death. Right? And so out of care and love for others, he says, confirm your election. Make sure of your election. And so for Peter, who has limited time, he wants to urge his fellow saints, as he writes in chapter 3, to make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with God. Now, are there tricky theological arguments that come with this verse? Yes, but that's for a different message entirely. What Peter encourages his reader to do is stand in our faith and press on toward goodness and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and mutual affection and love. The author of Hebrews speaks to this faith when he writes, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And what Hebrews 11 reminds us of in that Hall of Faith chapter, when we walk through the faith of Abel and Enoch and Moses and Abraham and Joseph and so many others, is this, that none of them received what had been promised. Sorry, this is verse 39. But rather, God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. So rather than questioning our election, Peter wants us to be confident in God's joyful assurance, out of which flows the divine power that God invites each of us into. And the result is verse 11 of 2 Peter 1. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in just a minute, we're going to close with a song called Graves into Gardens, and we sang this earlier. And I want to make sure that, that we know what this song means and what Graves into Gardens is actually representing. Ephesians 2 says that we are spiritually dead before we accept Christ, that we are in graves. And despite being made in God's beautiful image, we have allowed our sin to belittle God's name, as it says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we question God's rule, we question his authority, and since our creator God is not one to be mocked or belittled, he sent his son Christ in the flesh. And then God poured out his wrath against the children of God onto the son, and Christ willingly accepted the Father's wrath by taking our sins to the cross. 1 Corinthians 15 says it like this, For I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that same power that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in each of us. So that means that we follow a Christ that is both resurrected and resurrecting. 
When we accept Christ, we go from spiritual death to life. We are new creations in Christ, as it says in 2 Corinthians. We have shed our grave clothes and have become gardens growing new life. In the book of John, after Jesus says he is the resurrection and the life, he asks a great question, which I ask you, do you believe this? And if you've never answered yes to that question, I encourage you to do so today. You can mark it on your Connect card or you can see anybody on staff after service. So whether you've been a Christian for one minute or 60 years, my invitation is to sing this song from your soul, to celebrate what you are in Christ, to remember who you are and whose you are. Let's pray. Lord, we celebrate that you are a king who knows us. Lord, you shaped us and you crafted us. And there is nothing better than you. Lord, remind us as we leave here today to accept the invitation to rest in your goodness, to rest in your mercy, and to cling to your promises. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, help us. Help us be instruments of your glory in our homes, in our workplaces, and in our everyday lives. Amen. Will you stand as we...